This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And uh, I try to avoid getting sued, but I do write a couple blogs. One is Law Sites, another is Media Law, and uh, also the legal blog watch for law.com. Well, today we're going to be talking about an incident that all started when three MIT students, Zach Anderson, Russell Ryan, and Alessandro Chiesa, put together a presentation for their network security class at MIT about their findings regarding the security vulnerabilities uh, of Boston's uh, Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, uh, the MBTA, uh, its Charlie Card and Charlie Ticket program. They found that uh, the Charlie Ticket was vulnerable to forgery and cloning attacks. Well, once that project was finished, the students received an A, and their application had been submitted and accepted by DEFCON, a securities conference held recently in Las Vegas. After that, the students were uh, emailed their professor, Ron Riveston, asked them to share their security analysis and findings and suggestions to improve the security with MBTA. And to their surprise, the response from the MBTA involved the FBI and a lawsuit against both the students and MIT. Uh, oddly, about a week before the uh, DEFCON conference, the students had met with uh, representatives from the MBTA and, and voluntarily provided a confidential report to them. Uh, their sense after that was that uh, everything was okay, but uh, just before DEFCON, the MBTA sued the students and MIT in uh, federal court in Massachusetts just about 48 hours before they were to give their presentation. Uh, the uh, MBTA requested a 10-day restraining order against them to prevent them from revealing their findings at DEFCON. And then last week, a judge lifted that gag order against the students and rejected the MBTA's request to extend the restraining order, granting the students the right to discuss and present their findings, although it was after the conference. The um, MBTA's litigation continues. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at some of the uh, many legal issues involved in MBTA versus Anderson. Uh, the rights of these students, the MBTA's rights and reactions uh, in the lawsuit that was filed, the First Amendment issues, the security issues, and uh, what the future may hold for these students. Well, Bob, on today's show, we have Tuna Chatterjee. She's a fellow at the Berkman Center and a staff attorney with the Citizen Media Law Project, which provides legal education and resources for individuals and organizations involved in citizen media. Prior to joining the Berkman Center, Tuna was a software developer for seven years with a range of old and new media companies from ZDNet to Pearson Education. Before she graduated from Northeastern School of Law, Tuna in, interned with a boutique law firm where she focused on business and intellectual property strategies for software companies. Welcome to the show, Tuna. Hi, thank you. And joining us next is Attorney Mark Randazza, a First Amendment attorney with the law firm of Weston Guru, Walters, and Mooney. His areas of practice uh, include intellectual property, Internet and gaming law, as well as First Amendment law and media law. Attorney Randazza is also an adjunct professor of law at Barry University School of Law and writes for the uh, writes the widely popular blog, The Legal Satiricon. 
He's constantly working on the cutting edge of developing areas of law and fighting the good fight, uh, protecting all of our First Amendment freedoms. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to say he he traces his roots back to my neck of the woods up here in Cape Ann, Massachusetts, although he's now uh, in a better place in Florida. Uh, Welcome to the show, Attorney Mark Randazzo. Thank you. And I'm, I appreciate it. I don't know if it's a better place. I, I tell people I'm in exile here for making bad decisions. <laughs> Which is perhaps where the MBTA officials will be sent after this is all resolved. Well, perhaps they will. I, I mean, the, the, the biggest question I, I had about this case when I first heard about it was why, why weren't the folks at the MBTA glad that somebody pointed out to them uh, the security vulnerability in their Charlie cards? These are the passes that people use to get on and off the tee. And, uh, and I talking to Craig just before the show, Craig felt that, uh, that uh, they had very good reason to be concerned. Uh, so uh, let, let's hear from our guests. I mean, why, why would the MBTA have cared about this? Well, uh, according to their complaint, uh, it was a national security emergency. Now, I, I don't really take that seriously, but uh, it seems to me that this is a case of getting caught with your pants down, and um, they wanted the government to put a sheet over them while they pulled them back up. Well, isn't, isn't hacking a crime? Hacking's a crime, but is you know is the dissemination of the material a crime? Uh, is talking about hacking a crime? You can't disseminate the material if what you're doing is committing a crime in order to get the material. But at the time, they had already committed the crime, if it was a crime. And and I and I'm not going to defend what they did or what they didn't do before the material was created, um, only because a I lack the the complete mental capacity to understand half of it. Um, I've read their report. I can barely understand what you'd have to do in order to duplicate what they did. Uh, I, I think perhaps Tuna has the the, the uh, mental ability to do it. I don't. Uh, I know that they trespassed into certain private areas uh, that they shouldn't have gone into. Uh, that's a crime. And if they have to answer for that, that's that's okay as well. But what really shocked me was that this judge was prepared to issue a temporary restraining order on speech about their activities uh, when it was a time-sensitive presentation, but it was being made in Las Vegas to 5,000 guys. You know, I don't know how many of them are, were actually from Boston or who are going to go back to Boston and use this information. But the, I, I think that the real fear here was more of embarrassment than the entire Charlie card system would collapse. I'd like to hear from Tuna because this question of whether hacking is a crime, I mean, it seemed to be that these folks were doing this for academic purposes. Their presentation was for academic purposes. Does that in any way alleviate concerns about whether this is a crime or not? And Tuna, do you see this as a crime? Well, actually, that's exactly where I was going to jump in and say I don't know that this was a crime at all over here. The class that they took was with Ron Rivest, who is a noted uh, security expert and gave us PTP, I believe. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that's uh, that's encryption for a lot of the communications that we do over the Internet. Um, also, what they seemed to have done was to grow this analysis of the security flaws over a class project for a network security um, class with Rivet. At that point, I don't know that this is hacking as much as, as it is academic research on... It, it, does academic research suddenly insulate you from criminal prosecution? 
No, not necessarily, but I don't think that it also it it then automatically becomes hacking in the way that people see hacking to be a terrible thing. Um, it's certainly a neutral word for some of us where we are we see it as constantly testing the the boundaries and the flaws of a particular system. That can be a good thing. Wouldn't that, though, have been a little bit more proper with the students going to the MBTA and saying ahead of time, hey, we'd like to see if we can find some vulnerabilities in your system and coordinating it with them rather than just simply doing it from the outside? Oh, I, I completely agree, but I, my understanding of the case is that there is a factual discrepancy as to whether or not they tried to do so or made an attempt to do so. The students seem to indicate that they did. The MBTA seems to indicate that they found out on their own um, through an outside vendor. Um, and so that is an open question <laughs> as, to, as to what the students had tried to do. Uh, again, within the the security community, I think for decades it's just been an issue about at what point do you have guidelines or what kind of guidelines do you have to warn a company or an agency um, about the security flaws that you yourself have uncovered and what is the protocol? Do you do this after uh, disclosure to the public? Do you do this in 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 tandem with such a thing, or do you wait? Well, the consequences in this instance could have been that had they released it to the 5,000 people at DEF CON, who include both uh, members of the security community and members of the, the uh, community that, that do in the, what we understand the parlance to mean, uh, hacking, um, could have potentially people could have potentially hacked into the system using the students' information and caused significant damage, monetary damage to the MBTA. I mean, I, I just to jump in, I thought my my reading of this, and again, I, I'm not necessarily proficient in all aspects of this, but my reading of the news stories at the time, uh, as I recall, the students were saying that their presentation at DEFCON would not have revealed all of the details of the hacking in sufficient with sufficient specificity to allow somebody to necessarily replicate what they had done um, and uh, I don't know if anybody can correct me on that or, or knows more about that but but their purpose was to you know illustrate the, this exercise and the vulnerabilities without necessarily giving away the key that's my understanding too and um, what I will say is that I I, I appreciate the the very real concerns for the MBTA, um, and not just the MBTA. I mean, the, the students were focusing on the MBTA's Charlie card system, um, but the technology used within the RFID cards within that system is, is one that's used all over the country. Um, and so the thought is that perhaps it could be replicated to then start mounting um, attacks or defrauding other transit fare systems as well. Yeah, I don't know what a T-ride costs these days, but <laughs> how much is it now? I think it's a, a $1.50, is it? So, you know, I, I think that the, the threat here was not as great as the MBTA tried to make it seem. I mean, the, yes. the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act requires that the damage caused must include a loss aggregating subst uh, more than $5,000 required under 18 U.S.C. Section 
A5B1, or it has to be damage that constitutes a threat to public health or safety or to national security. Uh, the MBTA claimed all three. Now, I'm not that great at math, but to get $5,000 worth of stolen rides, first you've got to communicate this material to enough people in the greater Boston area with both the ability to understand the instructions, which were distributed weeks before the conference. So the material was not only already in the hands of all the attendees, but it was in my hands, it was, in, it was on WikiLeaks, um, it was probably in the hands of millions of people. You've got to find people, A, who want to hack the system to get free subway rides, B, who can do it, um, and C, who, who actually have the materials to do it. Well, my experience in watching how these hacks work is that people do hack in, and then they simply post the links on the Internet to be able to get the free card. Yeah, and I, I imagine they might have done that, and there might have been a way to create the free cards, but you're still going to need the materials to, to make the card. I mean, I know that when I was a kid, uh, we figured out that 10 centimes coins from France worked as MBTA tokens. Right. And anytime somebody went to France, it was, yeah, bring back a bunch of decentime coins. And there was always a pile of them in every apartment I lived in. Uh, we hacked the system you know, in, in a much less elegant manner back then. Uh, but, you know, there wasn't uh, anybody on the streets selling 10 centimes coins. And I probably cost the MBTA, you know, at least $100 over the course of my youth by, by throwing these coins in there. I, I just don't think that the panic, you know, when, when we're looking at suppressing speech, we're looking at a prior restraint, a court coming and saying what you are about to say in public is so god-awful dangerous that we're going to gag you from speaking about it. The harm that should come from that should be either an imminent riot, uh, a nuclear weapon detonating, not the MBTA getting caught, that, that it perhaps did not have the best security system for its fare cards. And I think that there is, you know, that we shouldn't forget that the Boston Herald uncovered that the contract to develop these was given in a no-bid manner to a former government employee. So, you know, I... I really have to question whether they pulled in Holland and Knight's big guns here because, you know, the entire blue line was going to sink into the, into the harbor <laughs> or because they screwed up. Uh, they were going to get embarrassed by a bunch of kids who were, who were frankly taunting them, and uh, they, they really didn't like the kids' attitude. That's what I see here. I, I don't see a national security problem or, you know, the MBTA about to go bankrupt. Well, you know, Mark, I think that uh, I think I, I'm totally with you about the pre-publication review that it ought to be uh, granted. Uh, prior state ought to be granted only in the most extraordinary circumstances. That's that's my understanding of the law, and that this definitely did not rise to the level of of that standard. Um, but your your initial talk about damages is also really interesting to me because the CFAA also talks about. Um, uh, about damages that that are caused by a third party over here the third party the students didn't cause the damages it was it was the, the vendors who made this who caused the damages the third party over here the students are revealing the third uh, the damages and sh so should that should that be a part of the calculation of the $5000 
Well, I, I mean, I keep coming back to this in my mind. If if I am operating a government agency or or even a private enterprise, and my agency is subject to security vulnerabilities, and I happen to be in a place like Boston where there's any number of of potential hackers out there who could expose those vulnerabilities. Wouldn't I welcome an academic presentation telling me the, about those vulnerabilities? Why would I want to just sweep it under the rug? I mean, Mark, you said early on the, this is uh, the MBTA was caught with its pants down. It's it's really kind of a situation of the emperor has no clothes, and, and nobody wants to to tell uh, the emperor about or, the you situation. Know, perhaps it's got something to do with this no bid contract. I you know I don't know, but it it definitely the way it was reacted to. You know I'm. I'm very proud to be from from Massachusetts, but the, you know you guys are embarrassing me up there with, you know, from the Aqua Teen Hunger Force uh, bright light uh, light bright bomb scare freak out to the the kid who got arrested at uh, Logan Airport for wearing a, a T-shirt with a circuit board on it to this. There is just such a seeming culture of overreaction. Well, and this is the second case of prior restraint this year in Massachusetts. A, a, a judge earlier this year issued a, a an order prohibiting a, a television news station from broadcasting uh, a report uh, that some firefighters were involved in, uh, were possibly uh, under the influence of, of either alcohol or drugs at a, at a time that they were involved in a, in a fatal uh, uh, accident during a during a fire episode. Uh, and that, of course, got reversed uh, later on. Uh, did did the judge in this case address the prior restraint issue and dismiss it, or or just uh, leave it uh, untouched? The order, well, the order really just weighed the weighed the the relative harms here, but without taking much of the First Amendment issue into account. Uh, really, I, I listened to the hearing as well online, and I recall it being. The judge was very dismissive of any First Amendment claim here, uh, saying that it was you know, this was just not a First Amendment issue. I, I, I'm, you know, it, it it just puts me into fits to think how you can say that speaking the truth is not a First Amendment issue, even if you do determine that the harm outweighs any loss of freedom here. Uh, you know, I can at least live with that. But uh, to to as as little shrift as he gave to First Amendment considerations, uh, it, it was it was very disturbing to me. Mark, what is the law in the First Amendment, just apart from this whole issue, as it relates to the ability of of uh, someone to speak freely about how to commit a crime? Well, you can speak about how to commit a crime. You can't incite a crime. Uh, if you want to give people instructions. I mean, look at High Times Magazine. Uh, you can that every issue tells you how to grow marijuana and make all kinds of uh, groovy chemicals, but uh, it doesn't mean that everybody buying it is doing it, and it doesn't mean that it's illegal to write about it. Well, in some places, like in California, it's not illegal to use marijuana for some purposes. It, it d- depends on what authority you ask. Uh, the federal government says yes. The the state government says no. But you can speak freely about how to commit a crime. As long as you don't incite it, what's the difference? Well, incitement would be if if I were standing outside of an MBTA station and I had the materials to create a fake Charlie card, and I was telling people here, take this piece, that piece, and that piece, glue them together, and you know, swing it around your head three times, and it'll work. 
How is that different than what would have happened in Las Vegas of giving a presentation to a bunch of, you know, half of which people at least were hackers on, here, guys, here's your roadmap. Go do it. Well, I don't think they, they were not encouraging people to do it. They were informing people that it was illegal to do it. And their intent was not that people would take it and do it. Uh, if they were giving this presentation right in, you know, in, in Harvard Square and saying, there's the tea station, go do it, that's incitement. And I could see a gag order being put on you at that point. But if you're at an academic conference discussing security flaws in computer systems, I really think what you're doing here is talking about a matter of public interest and public importance. Uh, they, they exposed, you know, they didn't ex just expose physical or electronic flaws in the Charlie card system. You know, a lot of this stuff was simply uh, security materials that were left out in the open, doors that were left unlocked. I mean, there was a lot more here than just the computer issue. And if I worked for the MBTA, I would want this suppressed because I would not want anybody to know that I was running such a leaky ship. It is tough going back to, um, I think, Bob's main point about why was the MBTA not thrilled to have to have access to all these issues as presented by the MIT students. Um, it's hard to imagine that you wouldn't want to leverage things like this coming out of a powerhouse institution like MIT. And a different way that the MBTA could have approached this is perhaps to sit there and make the students part of the solution as opposed to going on the attack. And Mark, I totally agree with you that, that by wanting to be at DEF CON, the students were exposing something to the public interest um, as opposed to doing anything to incite others. Well, my to understanding is that the right after DEF CON would have been the Black Hat Conference, which is completely hackers, and the students were slated to make a presentation at that conference as well. I would I would not be surprised if there is some part of the students that wanted to do something with bragging rights by being able to say, hey, look at what we did. We were able to do this. I still don't think that that rises to the level of incitement, though, by presenting to, to quote-unquote, hackers as opposed to um, the general public at DEF CON. Well, there is a big difference between black hat and DEF CON, and the, the crowd is completely different. There, there is, um, but I don't, and perhaps that makes the, 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 the causal link a lot less tenuous when you're talking about imminent harm. We, we should mention that we invited attorneys from the MBTA to be on this program, and they did not uh, accept our invitation. Yeah, and, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation as well. We invited them, and, and they didn't appear. Um, what, what are what are MIT's guidelines in this? I mean, what what um, what kind of guidelines exist in an academic environment to ensure that um, this kind of research doesn't actually uh, harm a company? I mean, granted, the the MBTA has a lot of power and the ability to be able to do some things that smaller companies uh, can't do. But what if it were a smaller company that didn't have the horsepower to be able to protect themselves like the MBTA apparently should have been? Well, it seems like they could protect themselves by fixing the flaw. But I, I do see what you're getting at, and it's not purely a legal question. It's an ethical question. And as I understand hacker ethics, 
um, and I use the term uh, neutrally, not pejoratively, uh, there, there is a responsibility to let the person know, or to let the entity know what you've discovered and to give them a chance to fix it uh, before you release it in a way that could cause them great harm. Now, that's very different than the legal issue. I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm very concerned about a judge deciding that my First Amendment right to hear that information was less important than the T's right to be able to keep from losing a few dollars in fares if it were to lose a dollar at all. But ethically, uh, I think they could have handled this a little better. I, I do know that when they produced their materials for the conference, it, it did make this seem almost uh, triumphant. And, you know, if you're a, a 19-year-old hacker and you just found a way to break through a security system at the MBTA, you're going to be pumping your fist in the air. Um, I think that they could have done a little better public relations job. Also, as I understand the facts, they did share some information with the MBTA. When the MBTA asked for more, they said no. And, you know, had they shared that information, perhaps the MBTA would have behaved better. Um, I don't think that there is a, there's a, a really a white knight on either side of this. Uh, I think the judge erred. I think that, you know, the MBTA's the MBTA should be ashamed of itself for what it asked for a remedy, but I don't see the, the, the MIT program as being 100% uh, without blame. We need to take a short break at this point. Uh, when we return, we're going to continue the discussion with our guests about uh, MBTA and hacking and uh, what it all means. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. Online video is one of the best ways to get the message out about your firm. And Legal Channels is where your firm should be. You can have your firm's video produced by TV professionals and seen on Law.com, Legal Talk Network, and YouTube. Find out more at Law.com or LegalTalkNetwork.com. Just click on Legal Channels. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are talking with Tuna Chatterjee, a fellow at the Berkman Center and a staff attorney with uh, the Citizen Media Law Project there, and also with attorney Mark Randazza, First Amendment attorney in Florida, and also a, a, a professor there. Uh, he practices with Weston, Guru, Walters, and Mooney. Um, the, the, the litigation continues here. As I say, we, we asked people from the MBTA to be on, and they wouldn't, but both uh, MIT and these students continue as defendants in this case, uh, we were just talking a little bit about the responsibilities of MIT. What, if if either of you know, what are what are the legal claims against MIT? How is it uh, implicated in this case uh, with any legal responsibility or liability? 
Well, the MBTA has said that they, they, they uh, failed to properly supervise the students. So I believe it's an it's account of negligent supervision that has been alleged against them. So, you know, we were talking before briefly about uh, this potential hack, and, and you mentioned that it was more of an RIFD hack than it was uh, a hack into the, um, the MBTA system. What are the broader ramifications of that? I think, again... Um, that the broader ramifications are that the public now knows that there are security flaws and that we as the public can put pressure on the, the vendors who created this to address them because we know that there are flaws as, as told to us by not just these three MIT students but even the person, I forget his name, who took their place at, uh, at the DEF CON presentation and still gave a panel discussion on the security flaws within the RFID system. Um, so that's my take. What are RIFDs generally used for? I mean, there's some, some of our listeners are not going to understand the term or understand what it's used for. Oh, fair enough. Um, I think it, uh, as, as far as I understand, they're used right now within the states for basically tra a public transportation system, um, fare collection. and They're also used in passports. They are used in passports, um, but I think that's that, that's for the newly issued ones. They're not um, as highly used there yet, quite yet, whereas I think I'm not quite sure what percentage of the states are using the, the RFID for the public trans their public transportation systems. And they're also used in grocery stores and, and pharmacies to uh, track inventory and books. So it's a pretty broad It uh, is a pretty broad and pretty I don't... Broad usage. Sure, and I, I don't know how extensive the security flaws are to those usages. All I know is that is that the presentations given have been more targeted towards the transit fare systems in the states. Well, part of the MBTA's case here is that these cards themselves are computers under the law, and and that the uh, the, the fiddling with with the code. Or, I mean, the hacking took place with respect to the cards, not with respect to any kind of unauthorized access into uh, computer banks at the MBTA or anything along those lines. Is that right? It is, and I find that really funny. And Mark, maybe you can speak to this. Um, it it does seem rather far fetched, but that the, the cards do fall under what it constitutes to be a computer. Yeah, it it doesn't seem to fit to me. Uh, under Section 1030, uh, the, you know, because it is a, I mean, it could mean, a, a computer means an electronic, magnetic, optical, electrochemical, or other high-speed data processing device performing logical, arithmetic, or storage functions, and includes any data storage facility or communications facility directly related or operating in conjunction with such a device. That comes pretty close to the definition of an RIFD. Right, because it could be a magnetic data processing device performing storage functions. Sorry. I imagine, yeah, maybe, but uh, it just doesn't seem to be what they had intended. It might fit uh, in, in the end. I mean, I, I think that's the, the really the least offensive uh, part of the MBTA's claims. What I, you know, what I, what I find problematic is, is the other definitions they're trying to bring into it. By that, you mean the transmission? Uh, no, no. Well, well, yes, the transmission, saying that voice-to-voice, -voice, you know, a person speaking to another person is, trans is somehow 
breaking Section 1030. Right, equating uh, a discussion in a public forum with computer intrusion, which is yeah, what that, that, that is about. just horrifying to right. me. Right, right. Well, regrettably, we're we're getting at the end of the time that we have here to talk about this, uh, and and there's a lot to talk about, and we could go on for some time. Uh, a lot of issues to explore. But we uh, need to need to bring it to a close. And before we do that, we like to give each of you an opportunity to provide your closing thoughts on the topic, and also tell our listeners how they can find out more about you or get in touch with you if you'd like to do if they'd like to do that. So, uh, uh, Tuna, let's start with you and have your concluding thoughts on this, and tell our listeners how they can find out more about your work. Well, my concluding thoughts, again, are um, just what would I do differently if I were the MBTA's general counsel and how would I suggest to go forth? I'm still trying to think of this because of many of the reasons that we have brought up over here. I'm also really interested in the CFAA, which is the act that um, that allowed the the complaint to go forward from the MBTA. Um, and I see it being misused not just in this case, but in a case like Lori Drew um, with the MySpace event. Um, you can find me at the Citizen Media Law Project where we collect legal threats about situations like this and more. Thank you. Thanks. And, and Mark, your final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that ultimately the, the MIT students may have been found to be guilty of some of the claims in this complaint. I, I don't think the CFAA applies. Uh, you know, perhaps some of the tort case, uh, the tort claims, such as conversion, might apply. Um, but uh, what really caught my eye about this case was the prior restraint that the judge issued, and I'm glad to see it lifted now, even if it is a bit too late. Um, you can get more information uh, about me from my blog, The Legal Satiricon. That's uh, LegalSatiricon.com. And uh, it's been a pleasure being on. Well, thank you both for being guests today. Bob, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at TheLegalTalkNetwork.com. And uh, just a, a reminder again that we do have an anniversary show coming up. And uh, if there are any listeners out there who would like to participate in that show, uh, they should drop us a line with an email to lawyer to lawyer at legaltalknetwork.com uh, with L2L anniversary guest in the title of the email. Uh, thanks a lot to our guests for participating today. And Craig, I look forward to talking to you again next week. Yep, we'll talk to you then. And uh, feel free to download our podcast on iTunes as well. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.